Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. I am your host, Don Kamarechka, on this uh, photo geekery adventure where we choose stories that are technical often, uh, but sometimes legal, ethical, all around the artificial intelligence, the future of photography. Uh, and that's what this podcast is all about, to kind of ride the edge of technology uh, and what's going to happen next in the industry. Um, this is one of our uh, attempts at a live stream. We are experimenting and hopefully this will become more and more common. Thanks very much to my guest host. Uh, I almost want to call my partner in crime here at this point, uh, making this work. Uh, my good buddy, Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you uh, this evening? It's good. It's good. It's long time no see. Yeah, we just recorded the behind the shot critique show prior to this, which we've kind of been doing these back to back as an experimental thing over the last few months. Uh, and I have a, a stream deck sort of uh, sitting here right in front of me. And uh, I, I have to get this thing oh, properly got configured. The big one. I got the big one. Uh, and I, I don't know uh, when I'll have the time to do that until my book is done. But I got the hardware Stream deck here. envy. Uh, <laughs> especially that angle that made it look bigger than it was. Yes. Uh but the, the idea of, of this podcast is to just involve the photographic community in the conversation. Uh, and I know a lot of people have been listening for quite some time. And uh, thank you for continuing to listen to our natterings on about all things photo industry nerdiness. Uh, and you're the best person to have on the show for that, Steve. That's why I've had you back so many times. How I are you? I appreciate that. I'm I'm doing great. I'm just... Uh, you know, having fun. I mean, really staying at home and doing more podcasting is always a joy to me. I love it. Doing the critique show we just did with you and our guest, Alan Hess, was a joy. It was a longer episode a little bit than normal because we went deep on a lot of shots and the the variety of shots was great. And so, yeah, I'm just having a good time and, and I'm just glad. I'm going to speak for everybody that's in the chat. I'm just glad that you are finally doing some, even though it's not every episode, yet uh, that you're doing some streaming live because I just, this show deserves it. Well, and, and as I've said, I'm, I'm setting myself up for doing much more live streaming, not just of this show, but of workshops and uh, uh, and interactive stuff that I could do in different formats. And I, I, I'm going to find that very valuable. Uh, so I've got all the gear. In fact, my studio on the other side has uh, a brand new light and reflector, and it's just a beautiful setup to do some of my upcoming DP Review TV um, episodes. And uh, I spent some time today unpacking that, setting it all up. It's not going to take me a whole long time to record the next episode on diffraction. Um, and I want to do that tomorrow morning and then sink my teeth back into my book, which I'm hoping to have uh, finalized in the second week of January. And so it's January. It's 2021, Steve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Did you enjoy your New Year, by the way? Uh, it was quiet at home. You know, we, we did buy a bottle of champagne in, in advance and, and we had that while we... Uh, I, I can't remember what we were watching at the time. Uh, I think we were finishing up the uh, the second season of The Rookie, uh, which oh. was... N I, I, I like Nathan Fillion as an actor, um, but the show needs kind of better writers. Uh, yeah, See, just, I love really Nathan Fillion, and I loved the show that he did before that. Castle, yeah. Castle, I loved Castle. Um, I think he's got a really unique personality for that type of role. The Rookie, I just didn't... I never bought 
Yeah, there were too many it. plot ho holes yeah. or cliches that just said, you know what, this is just a plot device that is just yep. used to make it a, more of a rom-com than it needs to be, and it just didn't connect. But uh, the past two nights, my wife and I watched Tenet. Have you watched Tenet yet? No, but I do want to. It's supposed to be really good. I need to watch it 10 times before I understand it. Really? Uh, maybe I need to watch it backwards once of those 10 times. Okay. Um, I'll give it yeah. a shot. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, uh, I'm not even going to get into what we discussed on, on the image critiques where you have not seen Mandalorian yet. So uh, yeah, there's that. Yeah, let, uh, no, we're not, no, I'm going to, I'm going to scratch that from the record. Uh, <laughs> No, we'll edit fine. that part out. We'll, yeah, we'll leave that in. But hey, it, it, it's on the to do list. There's just yes. a lot of stuff to do uh, to watch. And there's never enough time in each day when I hear thumping on the floor above me, which directly above me is my daughter's room. And she's four and a half years old. And so um, I have no idea what mischief she's getting up to. I'll find out after we're done this recording. But before I see that, we got to go through some fun stories. Let's and do it. Uh, so uh, story number one is something that. I, I think has been a long time coming because uh, we, we saw some uh, ideas of this in the past of uh, the UK has done this for a while, having the ability for photographers to uh, pursue a small claims court option. And now this is coming to the United States. And so from DP Review, uh, small claims process is finally passed into law uh, for US copyright infringement victims. And there was a video that goes along with this that is really a... a it's just the the tip of the iceberg and the tip of the tip that just kind of illustrates that, hey, yeah, you know, photographers couldn't go through a standard legal process because the value of a photo wasn't valuable enough. And I, okay, I disagree with that because if you register your copyrights, then you have the ability to claim a lot more than actual damages, statutory damages uh, come into play and potentially punitive damages depending on how the image was used. Um, Steve, did you watch the video? Did you read this, uh, th this I, article? I read this and I'm well familiar with, with this whole concept that it's been going around for a lot of years, PPA and... Um, the uh, Press Photographers Association, uh, you know, the, the the media journalists, as it were, media photographers, uh, have been talking about this for many, many years. And here's one of the things I just have to say right away, because it's a misnomer from moment one. It's not small claims court. So people yep. see this and think, you mean I can just do a $40 filing fee and go into small claims court and they have, no. No, it's, it's, it's a new thing. It's a copyright claims yes. board, right? Yes, it's it's a copyright claims board. It's part of the CASE Act of 2021. And basically CASE stands for Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act. But keep, again, small claims, not small claims court. There are different limits than what you would have normally. But here's one of the key things to keep in mind as I've had the copyright zone guys, Ed and Jack on my show before many times. I'd love <clears> to hear their opinion on this, by the way. Which I did talk to them about this when they were thinking about it, but I wouldn't want to put words in their mouth at this point now that it's passed. So that would be an interesting interview. I got to try and get them on again, or you should try and get them on. But here's one of the key distinctions. First of all, copyright law is a federal law. That's why it's not going to be an actual small claims court. So if you want the full rights that you have within copyright law, then you need to go to federal court. Federal court, and this is an absolute key part of this entire thing, right? 
federal court, taking this to an actual court, is still the only venue where copyright claims can compel a defendant to participate. Yeah, because you, you could try to do this process and nobody's going to show up. That uh, can happen. They can ignore you at this point. This is entirely voluntary. Or or they can say to you, look, we're willing to talk to you, but we're not going to do it here. We're a large corporation. We can afford the attorneys because they're on staff. We're going to go to federal court and you're the small photographer that has to go, but I, I can't afford it. Well, that that's not necessarily true. I know that a lot of photographers work on a, uh, or uh, lawyers rather, work on a contingency basis. If you have Correct. a case that's good enough, um, they will take it uh, without you paying anything up front, and they'll take a percentage of, right. of the case. I know that um, uh, Ed, as you mentioned, uh, I think his model, from what I understand, is there, there might be some upfront fee uh, to, to write an initial letter uh, that you have to pay out of pocket entirely. Uh, and that just kind of and that's common by the way and it's very common and then they'll take a percentage and filing fees you usually have to pay up front if you have to go to a filing process absolutely and then the percentages from the um uh you know the 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 process that you'll get might change It's, it's all lawyer dependent but at the end of the day those processes uh make it fairly easy for you even without this to pursue your copyrights, but it's all contingent on one really important thing in the United States. It's different in Canada, but um, that you've registered your your, your copyright, that you have gone to the U.S. Copyright Office and you have registered the, uh, you know, which the the majority of of people have not. Exactly. Which is where this comes in. Exactly. Because if you have not done that, and, and again, the, the fee is minimal. I think it's $55 uh, per set of 750 images correct. done within that a year. That is correct. Uh, and, and you've done, actually done a video on Behind the Shot uh, about how you go through that process, which My I My entire workflow, which is still current, by the way. Yes. And a year ago on January 1st and 2nd, I set aside that time and registered my entire works that I hadn't previously registered yep. um, with the U.S. Copyright Office. And I'm Canadian. So, I mean, the, the value <sighs> of that for me, <laughs> you're shocked. Uh but no, the, the idea uh, is that anybody, whether you live in Canada, the UK, Germany, Japan, you can register your copyrights in the United States. And uh, I, I don't want to say that the, that the number of infringements in the US are greater than that in your home country, because for me, that's not true. But the number of businesses operating in the United States uh, that could potentially infringe on your work is substantial enough that that should be a process you go through, even if you are not a U.S. citizen. Well, and if you are a, okay, I'm a, I got to word this right. If you are an actual business, right? If you are making money from your photography with clients, you just add fifty-five bucks to whatever your client fee is for any given job and register that job. It's not a hard thing to do, but that's where this small claims system that they've developed comes in because in federal court, if your images are registered, and of course, again, I'm not a lawyer and there are variables to everything. So as I give you out the the technical numbers, all of that's subject to change based on your individual case, right? But in federal court, you are capable of seeking up to $150,000 per infringement for that. That's basically statutory damages plus uh, or inclusive of 
actual damages, what you would have charged had they actually bought or licensed the image. If you have not registered in, and you go to federal court, you have no access to statutory damages. You only have generally. actual damages, which would amount can, to what you would <clears throat> have licensed the images for uh, to, to begin with. Now, right. that can sometimes be substantial. It could. But, but oftentimes it isn't. And most of the time, most of the time, it's not enough to cover the attorney fees that would be required to go to federal court. The advantage to this claim system that they've developed is it has to be $30,000 or less total. You mm. can represent yourself. There are even uh, uh, law students who can qualify as long as they're doing it pro bono to represent you. And if you want to, you can hire a lawyer. But here's where it gets interesting. It's a maximum of $30,000 per claim that you can seek. Well, that's for multiple images. That's more than multiple one images yeah. or 15,000 per image. But if you haven't, and that's if you've registered. Yeah, exactly. That's key. If you haven't registered, you can still seek statutory damages, 15,000 per claim, uh, 7,500 per, uh, per, per image. image. So, uh, so in th this gives a lot of value to photographers that want to go this route because $7,500 for somebody infringing on an image or, you know, 15,000 for a, a bunch of them from the same infringer, uh, which means w whether they infringed on two or 10, it's still, it, it caps the limit at 15,000. Right. Um, and, and so that's, that's important that those numbers are far higher than they would have been without this new structure in place. Because if you haven't registered your copyright, yeah, you know, what would you have charged for that image? You know, $500, $1,000, maybe less. Uh, yeah, people you know. who don't register are the winners here. Yeah. Hands they, down. They, and so this is this is a great advantage to people that haven't gone through the process of registering their image and have that wake up moment, that face palm where, you know, somebody has just completely egregiously misused their work, misappropriated in some way that you never would have wanted, that you would have liked to have gotten paid for, or you would have at least needed to give permission to use. Um, now you can claim $7,500. Right. The problem is, as you mentioned before, it's a voluntary process and, and all parties have to agree to this. There's no obligation that somebody has to show up legally in a court scenario to make this happen. And if they don't, I, I didn't see the actual legal process for that. If, if you just get awarded a default judgment, probably not nope. because you need no, to have that other No, because it's entirely voluntary and, and, by the way, NPPA, National Press Photographers Association, you know, brought up the point that this is designed to be done entirely remotely if you want, but it is entirely voluntary. And so either party at any time can go, you know what, I'd rather do this in federal court. And both parties are subject to that because the lower version is voluntary. But with it being designed to be remote... Not having an attorney in general, this has to me some really cool advantages. But if you've registered your copyright, here's my question to you because you've done this, right? Oh, yeah. If you've registered your copyright, so you know you're protected and you know they violated your copyright, they infringed upon that. Yep. Your rights. And it literally is an infringement on your rights. Why would you ever do this? Unless you took it to a lawyer and the lawyer went, yeah, there's not enough money in it for me on contingency. I don't want to take this. And you have trouble finding a lawyer. That's the only scenario where if you have a registered copyright, 
that I can see you doing this. Maybe, well, and- maybe the only violation was they posted it to Instagram. Well, so that, I, I've got a lot of social media, uh, you know, infringements that have been settled. Uh, and I, I can't necessarily name platforms and companies, uh, but that that's still a viable platform. And uh, when a lawyer might refuse to take a case, it's because they might feel like the infringer just has no ability to pay. Um, you know, a failing company, you know, you know, if the, if the social media account hadn't been updated in, um, you know, three or four years for whatever company it was, they might not even be in business anymore. Um, and, and so in those cases, yeah, the lawyer is going to say, it's probably not worth me, you know, getting my paralegal to draft up the letter. But at the same time, it's also probably not worth your time to pursue it because if it's not worth the lawyer's time, to draft a letter, uh, your time to go through whatever this process is when it's an, you know, kind of an unviable case, let's call it that if the lawyers have decided not to take it, uh, then yeah, sure. It, it's to your advantage. The real value here, Steve, I think is that if you haven't registered your copyrights, that there's a more powerful avenue, yep. especially if it is a viable infringement that you're not stuck getting, you know, peanuts, you know, to, to just kind of, keep yourself up at night and be totally stressed out about somebody stealing your work. And I've had vitriolic responses to copyright infringement stuff uh, where people say, oh, I found it online. It's free. You know, do a better job about Google. Uh, well, that's so ignorant and arrogant that yep. it's asinine. Uh, I agree. And uh, but but I mean, I I can't defend that. Uh, with my own personal opinion, I need a lawyer to be speaking for me at that point to say, yeah, you know what? Ignorance isn't a defense and, and exactly. we're going to pursue this to the full extent of the law. And to your point, uh, I, I think every photographer should be registering their copyrights. It avoids this whole problem to, to begin with. But if you're in that gray zone where you're now just getting that message because a big infringement has been presented to you and that's your wake-up call, that wake-up call isn't just a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face with a wad of cash. Right. Right? No, I completely agree. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad that that's there. And I, I wanted to make that the headlining story because that is great to see some laws in the U.S. that are favoring content creators. Uh, not just photographers. I'm, I'm sure that this in some ways applies to sculptors, musicians, to authors, and, and other people that are creating work that is subject to copyright. Uh, and so we should celebrate that there's at least uh, a movement forward in that area. Uh, I just wish yeah. that, you know, I, I would be able to go after a multinational corporation for, you know, if they infringe on my rights, uh, that they should pay something proportional to their income, not to the infringement, but like in some countries they have, uh, like, um, uh, like speeding That's patent tickets, law, basically. Well, yeah, sure. But <laughs> that happens in patent cases all the time. Speeding tickets based on your income. You know, it, wouldn't that be interesting if copyright infringement cases were based on that? It would make big corporations a lot more careful about what they do, because sometimes paying out a copyright infringement is just a line item that's barely visible on on a statement somewhere. It just yeah. disappears into the ether. They don't care about it. They don't worry about it. Uh, you know, we might never see that reform, but that's OK. At least we're making steps towards better progress for all of us. Now, talking about all of us. Um, all of us have smartphones. And uh, 
you know, we, we all have front-facing and rear-facing cameras on our smartphones. That's just part of the process, right? Oftentimes, multiple rear-facing cameras, one front-facing camera. And so an article from DP Review uh, is stating that Omnivision, they have revealed a 32-megapixel uh, OM32B selfie image sensor with a 0.7 micron pixel 1080p 180 frames per second video capture and more steve do you need more well I, uh you can no. go into the and more but no. I, I just i the selfie camera of all things do we need 32 megapixels out of that selfie camera is that something that do you know anybody I'm not just talking about your personal friends and family. Do you know anybody on social media, any influers, uh, influen- influencers, influencers, <laughs> influencers. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's it, a inf- new thing. Yes. Uh, influencers that that have gone and been clamoring towards the tech company saying, I need my face to be that much more beautiful when I'm taking a photograph of myself in resolution, in high resolution. I, no, I, I, I don't know anybody. No. And and here's the problem that I have with this. First of all, it's not just that it's 32 megapixels and and nobody needs it. And by the way, I should say there's a couple of times I've switched to the wrong camera because I'm listening and hitting the wrong button on my stream deck. So to people watching, I apologize for that. Um, 32 megapixels at 0.7 microns. First of all, 0.7 microns is stupidly small. Right? Well, and I want to make a point on that because 0.7 microns is more adequately described as 700 nanometers. Now, the reason why that's important is because that's a wavelength of light. And so human vision, uh, when we see like violet and blue, like the deepest violets that we can see are 400 nanometer. And the other end of the spectrum that we see in the deepest reds is 700 nanometer, which is 0.7 microns. You know, you're up against the limits of light in terms of the wavelength uh, that you're able to detect. And, you know, when you're at that limit, things are going to start breaking down. You know, 0.8, maybe things might work functionally, but 0.7 or like 0.69, whatever, you start to lose the reds and light has to bend around whatever micro uh, lenses that you have within the platform. But then we're, we're getting into a level where physics is against you in terms of, okay, well, is the marketing term worth, worth it? 32 megapixels at that size. Because front-facing cameras, remember, there's no way that you can have a camera bump. Like if I hold up my, my iPhone, and, and you've got one too, Steve, um, you know, the, the, the phone itself, it has three cameras on the back, but there, there's a bump there. I mean, it's hard right. to visualize here, but it, it's, it, it's not flush with the surface of the camera. The front-facing one has to be because it's hidden behind the glass. It's not going to be there. And... In that regard, I mean, uh, you, you can't put a bigger sensor in it, right? So you have to right. you have to do this. I don't know if that works. Well, and here's the thing. Let's point out that that iPhone that you just held up, it's a huge advertising thing that on the Pro Max, you're talking 1.7 microns, not 0.7 microns or 1.4 on some of the lenses. Now, this specifically states this article that this is a front facing camera sensor. So it's a selfie camera, right? I don't want, nor do I need, nor do I even want to see somebody else's 32 megapixel selfie. I just don't want that. Now, good side. By the way, Aunt Pruitt is here. Thank you, Aunt, for joining uh, in live. Yeah, Aunt, so nice to have you here. And if you guys don't watch Aunt's hands-on photography podcast, one of the best 
tip type podcast that you will ever find. So just so you know, he's on YouTube too. You can subscribe to him on YouTube, but this thing's got on chip remosaicing, two to three exposure HDR, 1080p at 180 frames a second. First of all, if I need to shoot something at a high frames per second, why am I using the selfie camera? Honestly, like, are you seriously? My God, what am I doing? (laughs) Filming myself running? Or filming yourself sneezing. There you go. Okay. That could be deliciously disgusting. I mean, I don't know how well that's going to go over. Ridiculous. But it does have, uh, okay, I'm curious because you're the geeky guy here. It has micro lens phase detection autofocus, or at least it provides that to developers to, to utilize it. I cannot imagine that micro lens phase detection AF can be any better than what Apple right now is doing with LiDAR. Nope, but keep in mind- Or even as good. Keep in mind the LiDAR sensor is on the rear cameras, not on the front. Uh, And and so in that regard- No, 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 no. The LiDAR sensor is, but the front-facing camera, it's still using the Face ID features. Right, that infrared camera thing. The infrared to map things out if they're close enough. So it is still doing more than just a standard lens autofocus, I believe. Yes, but you mentioned LiDAR, just making that okay, distinction yeah, that it's not enough, on the front. Uh, but there is other focusing aids that are being used on that front-facing camera because the subject is going to be so close to the camera, uh, a very low-emission infrared light can help you map things and focus on things very, very easily. So I, I think that that technology point is somewhat moot. However, what if you're trying to... No, I'm contradicting myself. I was going to say, what if you try to make a cheap device? Wait a minute. Hold, hold on, hold on. Could I, I, I missed that last part. Could you say that again? I, I, I was contradicting myself, Okay, Steve. I just want to make sure that was recorded. In my own okay. mind, the thoughts didn't make any sense because, it's, well, okay, well, what if you want to skip that tech, that extra camera and that extra uh, light source and, and get rid of that because you want to make a less expensive device? Well, then why the heck are you going to put what is probably going to be a very expensive front-facing camera module in there? Uh, I don't think that the savings is going to equate in anything that's meaningful. Here's the thing. There's one feature in this that arguably should be the default. It can do pixel binning to make an eight megapixel image with four times the sensitivity. So now you're at 1.4 microns. Now, keep in mind, you're not actually at 1.4 microns. Because it's a Bayer pattern. And so the individual pixels are still 0.7 microns. Exactly. So there's a noise issue. There's all of that still there. I just, I'm sorry. I don't even need on my phone. My iPhone's 12 megapixels still. I'm posting them to Instagram. I do not need these things to be printed on my wall. Uh, but he, here was th- something really interesting from the press release. And, and I know we want to get into other stories here because we've done this mobile high resolution thing to death. We've beaten this horse that is apparently yeah. still breathing. So we, we yeah. keep kicking it. <laughs> breathing, um, running, we're chasing it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, A quote from the press release, in 2021, TSR estimates that there will be 244 million image sensors with 32 megapixel resolution shipped to smartphone, uh, yeah. Ship to smart smartphone. Why can't I speak tonight? I Take two. Even and I'm hitting the drink. wrong button because I'm so used to editing for me. I keep trying to go to Don and hitting my own button. So again, yeah. Uh, hey, uh, no editing on this. We just run right through. 32 megapixel resolution shipped to smartphone manufacturers for use in selfie cameras. 244 million 32 yeah. megapixel selfie cameras in smartphones in 2021 when there are zero of them right now. I, I just, that's, 
projecting much. It's not wishing, possible. Waking yeah, up in a dream. thinking, sure. Yeah, so. yeah. No, they're, they're dreaming. They're nuts. Yeah. So anyhow, um, there's that uh, that will be in a smartphone near you at some point soon. Uh, and then you can ridicule the person that bought the device that contains it because it is entirely unnecessary. And to that end, uh, we are going to go into something that may or may not be necessary. Uh, I'd love to know your opinion on the next story, Steve, because we're on the verge of CES. And there's a lot of new announcements. We're not going to cover them all this episode. We'll probably cover some more uh, next episode as well because they continue to come out every day. But Dell has announced new monitors just ahead of CES, uh, including a, and this was really interesting to me, uh, a 40-inch ultra-wide curved 5K display. And Dell is no stranger to making very nice monitors. The, the ultra sharp line from Dell has been great. I put that at about the same caliber, maybe a little bit below the Asus ProArt display models. Um, and uh, they're really kicking it up a notch here in terms of you know, the, the ultra wide curved displays. They've always been lower resolution. Uh, but now it's going to be uh, a misnomer. It's 5K across the entire display. Uh, and that 5k doesn't carry the full 5k height. It's just the, the width because it's ultra wide. Right, you don't have the same, right. uh, the, the same level there. And as a content creator, I've always been curious about these, uh, these curved displays, but I don't think I'd ever want to create my own content on one because I mean, what, what if my, my lines look straight, but they're not because the display is curved. I think it's much more of a, um, I think that's a real thing, by the way, I, I, I think the distortion, there's no way you won't have distortion on something. Like if you're a real estate photographer, right. And you want to make sure that your lines are straight, that there's no parallax effect in your shots. You went, took the time to use a tilt shift lens and do it right. I don't believe I've never used one on an editing bay. I believe it could be a problem. I really do. There, there's a reason I think why companies like ISO or ISO um, that they don't make um, yep. curved displays Good because point. they're, uh, you know, for medical imaging, for professional imaging, and so on. They just have not entered into the space because, I, you know, I think it would be great for gaming uh, in a much more dynamic environment uh, and possibly for just content absorption. However, uh, as a content creator. I would want them to be viewing the content on the same type of display as I created it on in terms of the projection. And by curving the display, you're technically changing the projection if you're talking about projectors and so on and so forth. Um, so if you were a, a movie maker, a director, Hollywood AAA movie director, um, I mean, would they cringe at somebody using a curved display to, to view well, their masterpiece of work? I mean, is, I'm going to go to our buddy Ant in the chat who just said the perfect thing. I give my listeners grief when their horizons are crooked. Why would I go for this? Yeah. You know, okay. And again, it may not be an issue, but here's a couple of things. You said gaming. No. Editing pictures, not a chance for this image, for this monitor. It's rated at a typical brightness of 300 nits. That is not bright enough in any manner, shape, or form for somebody that's a content creator to me. It only supports 60 hertz refresh rate, not fast enough for gaming. Five millisecond response time, that's good. But there's this to me is this to me is the guy that's in a business and is managing. Uh, I'm thinking 
I don't know why, I'm thinking project manager in my head, right? So they've got project management software up. They've got email up. They don't want, like I've got now, a four-inch gap between my two 27-inch monitors. You're a Forex trader, you know, you got to have all this stuff on. Right, you don't want to have four monitors. Now, oddly, for a monitor that only goes 300 nits, which is nothing, right? I mean, that's not bright. To give you an example, I think it's a 1,000 nits for the Apple XDR display, this thing does cover 100% of Adobe RGB and sRGB uh, and Rec. 709, by the way, 90% of DCI-P3, but I don't see a video editor doing this. Nine watt built-in speakers, a real editor that's doing video is going to want their own speakers. The ultra sharp name carries a pedigree to me. You know, it, it, it carries that same thing. Carries a day trader. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Uh, so the, the idea, yeah, and I've loved, and I'm using uh, a an Asus ProArt display here as my main, it's a 32-inch display. It's 4K. And uh, they've upgraded it twice since I bought this one. This one is fine enough for me until there's a reasonable increase up for it. And I've got two dead pixels, which are driving me nuts. But um, if, if somebody like Dell, uh, Asus, uh, uh, Ezo, these companies make a 5K display that is a you know normal aspect ratio um, that uh, has image quality and it's flat. I might buy one to replace my current monitor that's starting to show its signs of age. Uh, I wouldn't get a curved one though. But CES 2021 might show us some additional monitors from other companies, and maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's not 5K. Maybe it's 6K that I'd go for because I'm shooting a lot of 5.9K uh, video now, and I'd want to see that pixel per pixel, you know, one to one ratio, uh, just as part of the process of producing that content. Um, so, is is it necessary that that we go this route? I honestly no. think content creators should avoid curved displays, and, and I, I don't agree. think I'll ever change my opinion on that. No. Um, but the fact that they're getting to higher resolutions and the technology is becoming more malleable is good. Uh, I want to get that 6K, really high quality display that performs really well at a low brightness setting. I mean, I, I set mine to uh, you know uh, 80 uh, CD slash M, uh, M squared, uh, which is lower than a lot of people will set their, their monitor brightness. But I'm in a normally completely dark room. There is a window uh, behind me there that has been covered in cardboard for like four years. I've never opened it. There's probably a whole bunch of dead bugs back there. Um, and uh, I, there's a reason why it's constantly covered. I just don't want any ambient right. light in this environment. Same here. I've got, a, I've got a window here and I've got a blackout curtain over it. And I've actually bought a sound blanket that's blackout to go over it. But, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned something that's key and that is that, that you calibrate to 80. I calibrate to 100. We should probably say, for those of you out there that aren't calibrating your screens, you should be. And B, if you've never done it and you go looking up, how do I calibrate? You're going to see numbers that you should do for your brightness calibration and read them, understand them, but understand that those brightness numbers, just like your D rating of 6,500 or, or 5,500, those are all based on your room. So I, for example, calibrated 100 for my brightness. Uh, this monitor, I, by the way, there is one thing about this monitor that surprised me. It's 5120 by 2160. It's 140 PPI for a 40-inch monitor. That's not bad. That ain't too bad. It's got Ethernet built in. Interesting. It's basically really built on, on the hub concept, 
right? DisplayPort yeah. 1.4, two HDMI 2.0s. It's got a Thunderbolt 3 port. That rocks, especially when you look at the price of this thing. USB-B, uh, they've got four USB-As, a super speed USB-A, a USB-C downstream port, and all of this is available for 2100 bucks. right? When it's out, it comes out January 28th. Right. Not a bad price for what you're getting. I just, it's not for me. Well, and the, the thing about monitor brightness too, and, and by the way, uh, CD slash M2, uh, <laughs> I, it's candela per square meter. It's just a yeah. measurement of light output. Uh, and uh, Steve, it's deceptive in the room that you're in. Your walls are bright. I don't know if they're white or light gray. They're actually like 18% gray. Yeah. Uh, so, but my, my wall, my, my walls are dark. Uh, they're very dark. Uh, you know, I have lights on me personally, but I, I choose to put the lights on, on the wall, uh, so that the prints will stand out quite a bit. And when I'm in my back part of my studio, you can see the lights behind me. That's where my printer is. And those are halogen bulbs. Um, and that heats up my office in the wintertime. Um, but that's for print, uh, reproduction and uh, to see things in reference to whatever the ambient light is. And I try to keep that very low here. Um, so as you said, Every setting is going to be different for the photographer, uh, for the environment. Um, we should mention really quick, though, the other monitors. There is a 38 curved monitor as well. That one's only 1500 bucks, but it only does 95%, for example, of, of DCI-P3. Um, and then there was a 24-inch and a 27, what they call hub monitors, that are available with the USB hub or without at different prices. Yeah, and a couple of hundred bucks either way. At, but... You know, when I buy a monitor, uh, the last one that I had was an LG uh, 30-inch. I think they, they stopped making that class of monitor a while ago uh, from that company. Um, and I used it until it died. In fact, it was starting to die. Uh, the I, I can't remember if it was the power switch or whatever. But I ended up just leaving the monitor on at night. Yeah. And, and it would just stay on constantly until it finally died for good. I drove it into the ground because when you get a good display that you're happy with, uh, you know, you're, you're going to want to get the most out of that, just like you do a good car. Um, and so displays are not something that I change often, but the technology is evolving so quickly right now that if there was that perfect 5 or 6K, really good flat 30 to 32 inch display, I'd jump on board. I think I would take that on. I agree. I completely agree. They also have, I'm having weird stuff happening with my screen sharing right now. They also have uh, video conference monitors. Those were actually really interesting to me. And I'll tell you why. They are certified for Microsoft Teams. Oh, interesting. And they're, so, in other words, they actually have a Microsoft Teams button, which by the way, I hate Microsoft Teams. So they have a Teams button actually on the displays. They have a pop-up camera, which you can see in the picture there that I've, I've got up. Um, they have, which is Windows Hello certified for secure login. Five-watt speakers with noise-canceling mics what, what, in the camera. Steve, what, what if Microsoft Teams becomes obsolete or, at the very <clears throat> least, an anachronism in two years from now? Uh, and then you're well, stuck with this device with proprietary technology involved. And, and how many times has that happened, right? Yeah, I have SCSI cables still in a bag in the garage, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, and you have to get like a custom Terminator on the end of them at a certain point based on the number of drives you wanted to attach at once, right? Yeah, yeah. Ant just said an interesting thing, and that is he's in the market for a monitor and he's happy with 1440. Um, oh, no, he, I, uh, 1440, yeah, 1440 so resolution. Yeah. 
That's the which, vertical. You know, everybody's going to have something different. My, I've got a 5K monitor. I've got a uh, uh, you know standard 1920 by 1080 monitor. One of them is matte, so that I can, and, and it's internally color calibrated by NEC. Um, it gives me the ability to see on different monitors. I kind of like the fact that I have a two separate monitors. It's glass on the Mac. It's matte on the NEC. They're both calibrated to be almost close, uh, you know, as close as I can get them. And yet you'll see differences between the two. If I yep. just had one big monitor, I kind of lose that ability. So yeah, there's, and in one monitor, by the way, you can't do a second monitor. So I couldn't put Lightroom here and just the full picture here or screen sharing and where my notes are here and my keynote presentations here, 40 inch monitor, it's one monitor still. There are advantages to dual. There is. And I have dual monitors too. I actually have a, a triple, but I'm not using the third one at the moment. Um, because having that sort of, I don't want to make it compare to photography, but that wider field of view, having them all kind of stretched out across your workspace, you'll find different uses for different things. Uh, and the third one I would often use for like streaming TV or something while I'm working. It's right, just right, like right. off in the periphery. Uh, the second one for emails and stuff and the main one for my main for my main work. But speaking of uh, a field of view, uh, terrible segue, I know. But going into I know, but the, you tried, the, I tried the, into the next story from Petapixel, um, shooting portraits with a giant IMAX lens on a Canon EOS R, and this is from the Slanted Lens. Uh, and uh, JP Morgan did this really interesting video, I thought, where he found this uh, obscure niche lens, which is a 180 degree fisheye IMAX lens. Um, that he adapted to his uh, uh, Canon EOS R. And I thought this was really fascinating. I just love DIY stuff, photographically speaking. And uh, the fact that he had to build a mount for it uh, and slide the camera forward and backward to focus the lens. I love that he showed building the mount. Oh, and, and, and the fact that in the video, he said that at first he liked that it was weird that some things in, in the sides were out of focus when they shouldn't be. And then he realized, yeah, he might have not made the mount perfectly straight. Right. Uh, as So, you know, it was a learning experience for him. The camera well. itself was not on plane, basically, is, is what he's saying at that point. Well, technically, the lens was not on plane because the plane right. is in the camera. Right. But I get what you're saying, yeah. yeah. Uh, and... I, I mean, I looked up the company. I tried to find one of these lenses. I, I think it's a really special thing that is a name your price. It's an invaluable thing that nobody could actually get their whole uh, their, their hands on. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming you watched the video, Steve? I watched the video. And one thing they say in this article that, that I agree with, but he doesn't state, but it's pretty 100% clear that he's actually using an RF to EF adapter on his EOS R, which is the camera that he's using for this. And that adapter goes inside, which he did mention inside once, but it looks like the adapter actually goes inside the back of that lens because the way he's focusing, there's no focus. In fact, there's no lens attached. Well, lens this, isn't it, attached basically to the it's, it, it's a bellows system, right? Where yes. you can, so you he's can... sliding the camera forward and backward to get focus. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, man, I just love the look of this lens. I, uh, it, it, it's a fun thing to have. Uh, but let, let's be clear. Uh, he makes a, a point at one uh, portion of the video that he can see himself kind of beside the camera. And that would be true if he was using uh, an IMAX uh, sensor size. 
Now he's not because IMAX, the sensor size was I believe 70 millimeters across by something like 44 or 48 millimeters tall. Like it was massive compared to 35 millimeter film being 36 by 24. So it's roughly double uh, the the horizontal length at the very least. And, and, and in that regard, uh, the image circle is going to be projected at twice the size. Again, roughly, I'm not, I didn't put the numbers together, but roughly twice the size as the camera is able to capture. Just the same way as using a full frame camera or a full frame lens on a micro four thirds uh, camera body, you're going to have that two times crop factor. And this is the same thing just you know, one step up. And what that means is you're not going to get 180 degree field of view. I, I right. don't know exactly what it's going to equate to, but it's definitely not that. You would need to have a speed booster, an IMAX to full frame speed booster that would condense the image circle back down. And to my knowledge, that doesn't exist. Um, it probably be very expensive to manufacture. And if it did, um, that's where things would get really interesting for me because this lens was, uh, uh, what did he say? I think it was an F2 lens um, or something to that regard. I can't recall off the top of my head. I don't I recall what he said, but but like the shot that I've got up right now, if you're watching the video and if you're not, go check out the blog post for this. But the shot I've got up right now to me is a, is a perfect example of what's really cool about this. He, by the way, wrapped gaffer's tape around that mount to stop light leaks and stuff. Gotta love Gaffer's uh, which tape. Was, which was smart. But look at this. You would almost think that skateboard is on the same plane as his body and his feet, but the skateboard's out of focus. His face is in focus. It is that tilt shift type effect. I would love to see what this would do up on a hill, right? Shooting down at a train in a little village like you would do, like you see the tilt shift effects. I'd kind of... I just think that would be really, really neat. Using this for street and skateboard, though, was creative. It really was. Really creative. A absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that it would equate to something like an F1.1 or 1.2 fisheye lens if you were to condense that down, which would be really interesting on a full-frame camera. Um, and uh, I, I, I would like to see it. I don't want to say that I want to use it that way, but I would love to see somebody with the technical chops to use it with those optics condensed down in that way for astrophotography or something of that nature. Ooh. Astrophotography video even would be a lot of fun to see. But, and this is a brief aside. He mentions in the video uh, that uh, he was at, uh, you know, he was in Santa Monica, just outside of Los Angeles. Right. Um, and the video was published on January 5th. When... Los Angeles is in a very, very sore state right now um, with, uh, I, I don't want to be too doom and gloom here, but there's nobody wearing masks anywhere in any of the footage or in any of the video. And I think that if you're going to go to Santa Monica in January of 2021, and I know not everybody's going to wear masks, but you know, I would at least show myself taking one off to start recording the video in, yeah. in a message of solidarity. That would be good. Yeah, good point. Uh, because right now, I, I heard a story that the uh, paramedics in LA County, um, they are you know not picking up patients that have a slim chance of survival and rationing oxygen. Uh, and yeah. it's a very, Yeah, I'm very in serious. Southern California. It's it's hospitals are bad here. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a bit of shame on that. I, I, I hate to, to, to cast that cloud on, on this, but I just kind of see it in the global events of things and said, you know, okay, you know what, w wear a mask. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. 
I agree. But but seriously, go watch the video because some serious creativity going on. This this reminded me of something Don would do. Put it that way. Yeah. Well, I would love to get a copy of that lens. It would be a lot of fun to have, uh, especially for astrophotography stuff, which leads into the next story, um, which Google has removed the astrophotography mode from the Pixel 5 and Pixel 4a 5G. Not entirely but just on the ultra wide cameras. And this is kind of, I think, I think a first for Google where they've retroactively, you know, taken back a feature to say, eh, well, we really kind of overestimated our, our applause that we would get for this. And maybe there was some uh, dissenting commentary, some uh, influencers, not influencers that, uh, that produced this content that was not, you know, up to their standards and was maybe ridiculed or just criticized in a way that was unflattering. And so, yeah, they have taken back this feature from their flagship phones. I don't recall in any recent history where a flagship phone manufacturer uh, has scaled back their offerings after people have purchased it, possibly even, you know, if I was thinking of using a phone for astrophotography and I had an ultra wide option for that, I mean, that's what you want for this feature, right? You right. want to, you know, to take in the entire night sky. Um, it's gone now. And so that feature that you loved, eh, well, maybe you didn't love it, but either way, uh, it's no longer at your disposal. Your thoughts, sir? Well, and one of the things I want to point out is this, it's not just a rare example of a developer of any piece of hardware or software taking a feature back, although it's happened, right? I mean, the first thought that hit me when I saw this was when Apple first bought Siri, it was a third-party app. I owned it. You could book movie tickets and reservations. It was amazingly full-featured. They bought it and clamped all of those features down. But it was a third-party buying it and changing it to fit it into their mold, and in many ways, making it way worse, but a different story. Yeah. So in this particular case, this is Google handicapping a feature they had put in their own phone and had used in ads. So this was a this was actually one of the selling points was that the longest an iPhone could go when they came out with their night mode was nine seconds at that yeah. particular time. Google could do whatever 30 seconds or whatever it was, which was the astrophotography mode. So for them to take that out and handicap it in camera app version 8.1, uh, which came out back in November, that's a huge thing. You can still do night, you can still do astrophotography mode on the primary camera. But not on but this. But what one. they say now is it only works on zoom settings equal to or greater than one time so that means the primary camera or and that's it yeah well it, it, and you could crop in on anything if you wanted to, to move it a little bit further than that but that's all it's going to be doing that digital zoom um so yeah i i feel bad about this because i was i was on the fence between getting a uh, a pixel 5 or 4a i mean i was throwing those up in yep. the air um uh, along with the the iphone 12 pro and i went with the iphone 12 because of the lidar and some of the features that might benefit me in that regard you know there's some really cool 3d opportunities uh with that extra depth information but uh i always looked at google because of those beautiful astrophotography stuff that's been in all their ads uh and the whole night mode stuff is just you know just blown anything else out of the water and to take that critical powerful moment of say, you know, I'm going to buy 
your phone for this one feature that puts you above the edge of everybody else and said, again, don't put it in your ad if there's a chance you're going to take it out. But they did give, well, they didn't give. I should rephrase that. Back up, start up. There is speculation that there is a reason for it. In the Google support forums, users have reported or shown images that are really poor image quality on the ultra-wide camera. And Ant, actually, in the chat said, the only good thing about those ultra-wide lenses uh, were always super soft, 20% in on the diameter from the edge. But Ant also says that the astro mode, uh, on in his experience, uh, looked just like a simulation and not like a long exposure, which is really interesting because if you can, yes. if you can use the, uh, the algorithms to detect a key number of stars then you can detect where they should be in the night sky uh, based on the the field of view of the lens and you know the curvature and you can calculate exactly that. And you can replace the sky if you can figure out where a couple of stars are. Uh, yeah. I don't know if Google was doing that. Maybe they were to kind of bridge that gap. And if they were, eh, well, shame on them because uh, well, you shouldn't really do that. But but this, this to me... And I know Ansa an Android user, so I'm glad he's in here to say that because I'm not. But this to me is one of those distinctions between, you know, Android comes out with features, Apple comes out with features, and, you know, haters going to hate type thing. It's, well, we had that a year ago. Okay, but it was so soft they had to remove it, right? So there's a there, to me, there's a quality issue. And by the way, some of the latest Google Pixel phones, you kind of wonder what Google is thinking on what they're releasing hardware-wise. This, to me, is the perfect example of, which I usually think of Samsung for, by the way, Google throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks, right? And yep. putting these features in that maybe were not quality controlled, for the best user experience from day one. And if it's not ready, don't release it. Well, uh, but you've got, it, this goes back to the classic argument between the engineers on one side and the marketing people on the other. Marketing people says, hey, uh, we need to step up our game in this area. And the engineers say, it's not possible. The marketing people say, find a way. We don't care how the marketing, or the engineers in turn come back, say, it's just not possible and uh, the, the marketing people come back whispering very seriously in their ear, saying, compromise. You know, it's... A <laughs> Which is, by the way, the 32 megapixel selfie camera. Okay? <laughs> exactly. Megapixel wars stopped for a number of years. And all of us photographers went, thank God they finally realized megapixel wars are stupid, right? We want better pixels, not more pixels. Amen. But the marketing team, it's kind of like internet. Right. This is this is one of my things with Internet. And that is, for example, the Internet service provider that I'm on. No names being mentioned. Spectrum. Um, <clears throat> the Internet service provider that I'm on will advertise that, hey, it's gigabit. But the max that they'll go is 30 up. It's gigabit down, which is actually I'm 940. In the same boat as you, Steve. Uh, and, and they and don't even, even further on. And I think that this is illegal uh, on some level. But I was trying to upload some footage uh, for a documentary shoot to a, uh, a UK based company. Uh, and some of these files were big. And, and maybe I could pick your brain on this for a second, because okay. I, you know, the, the files, when I say Hold big, on. I mean, you know, between <laughs> between 20 to 40 gigabytes per file. 
And okay. I, I was trying to upload them to Dropbox. And Dropbox kept failing repeatedly, constantly. But after a, I've always had problems with Dropbox and large files. And uh, you know, WeTransfer doesn't go that high. Uh, you know, and and so I I thought, okay, well, let's just keep retrying, trying maybe some different services. But I noticed after a time, a short period of time, after one day, my bandwidth of thirty up was capped at around fourteen or fifteen up, and. Yep. Uh, the thing is, I went through a VPN to Toronto nearby, uh, and my bandwidth was roughly the same, maybe slightly higher. There's no way that throwing a VPN in the mix is going to keep no. equal performance or slightly better performance. It means that they were looking at my data and no, seeing where it was sniffing. going. That's all they're doing. And they were They're sniffing the packets and, and they're limiting. Against, and that's against net neutrality laws. Well, right? assuming they're, that there's they're, net neutrality laws that anybody's enforcing, but yeah, you know, ISPs have done this for the long time for the health of their network. In some ways, they have to sniff packets, they have to understand what's happening, and they have to know what's going on to maintain the stability of the network. But they they way overplay that card, by the way. But you know, the fact going back to the marketing thing, the marketing people <clears throat> they only want to say one number, right? Your baseline internet speed can be 40. Okay, 40 what? Well, it's 40 down, but it's five up. You need five up to do HD video conferencing. And everybody right now is home doing HD video conferencing for school or for work. But they only mark it off the fact, I would rather my 940 by 30, and in, in fairness, I get about 39 up. I would rather that be 700 by 150, right? It's bandwidth. Split it up how you want. It's bandwidth. But yep. marketing teams take over. And, and to me, that's what happens when a marketing team takes over. Here's about a feature, says include that feature, but the feature's not ready for prime time. Exactly. And I, I do understand that there's a difference between downstream and upstream and how the data is handled. And I don't know the specifics of it, but I know that unless you have fiber to the home, it's very difficult to get synch uh, synchronous uh, gigabit. Uh, yes, you know, th yes. th there's something in synchronous the anything. Yeah, exactly. So th there is something in that process that I am on. It's unknown to me, but I previously had a connection that was 300 megabits per second and 20 up. The reason why I upgraded to a gigabit down was to get from 20 to 30 upstream. I, oh my God. <laughs> do I live in Canada? I had, I had a 400 by 20 which is more than enough in most cases, but I'm a photographer and I have online backup. So I'd come home from a, from a weekend festival with 2000 images off a of 5D Mark IV and I wanted them all up online as quick as possible. I upgraded to 940 by 30, which I get 39, thank God, just so that my backups would happen quicker. Yeah, so you you pay, and for me it wasn't a whole lot more because uh, I put up a big stink about them not uh, giving me a discount on a new platform that came out right. at a slightly higher speed at a slightly lower price. And who is going to inform all of their customers that they're paying more than they should? Uh, and so you know you put up a stink, and uh, uh, you know th this is I hate to play this game. This is game theory, but I look up all the competitors. Uh, and I find all of their rates and I come up with them and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to switch to Rogers or I'm going to switch to Bell. I, I'm currently right. with Tech Savvy, uh, which uses the Bell uh, or uh, the uh, the Rogers infrastructure. Um, 
but anyhow, I, I, I put up a, a, a bit of a fuss saying, hey, I've done my research uh, and they've got a better deal for a, a new customer and uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily on a contract right now. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go this way. Uh, what steps do I need to take uh, to, uh, to cancel the service? And don't say you're canceling the service. Say, what steps do you need to take to cancel the service? And they will forward you on to another person. And that person is yep. in their retention department. Customer retention. And their retention department, their only goal yes. is to stop you from leaving. And they have deals that you Power. will not get any other way unless you find yourself to the customer retention department. So you yep. have to find your way there on the verge of leaving. And heck, you know what? You might even still leave because honestly, well, you can switch services very, very easily these days. But they will give you a deal that you won't find anywhere else. And maybe it'll make you happy. So anybody in the chat who supports clients, like I do IT consulting and Ant used to be in enterprise IT, you'll understand what I mean by this. On a regular basis, I get paid by the hour. So when I'm in a client site and they're having an issue with a service provider, whatever it might be, not necessarily internet, could be phone, could be anything. <clears throat> and they're having a problem, I'll call and I'll be nice. And people talk to me, I don't want to be on the other end of the phone from you. It's like, look, I'm not rude on the phone, but I get paid by the hour and I don't have time because I do care about my client's money. I don't want to just rack up hours, right? It's just unethical to me. I don't have time to play the game. So I immediately, almost always ask, are you the person that has the power to make a decision that I need right now? Here's what I'm looking for. All I want from you is a yes or no. Do you have the power to discuss an actual solution I'm interested in? If not, that's okay. I need to get to the decision maker. Yeah. Who's the decision maker? I'll hold. <laughs> let's let's go to them right now and just save us all some time. And 90% of the time it works. Sometimes it just doesn't because they're really good. Ant said, uh, just the facts. Don't give me a story. Yes or no. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, that That is absolutely so key. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there are ways to, to, to work around the system. Rat hole. I, I, well, I, I mentioned game theory. Uh, and, and in terms of getting a stronger, faster internet connection, there's ways to get it cheaper. And I think that is important for photographers. Yeah. Because we are constantly, like you said, backing up data to the cloud or sending stuff to clients. I ended up having to ship a drive, a two terabyte hard drive, uh, FedEx next day to the UK. Now, the client paid for that. But it's right. because I couldn't get it uploaded from any of the things. I was babysitting stuff on Dropbox. I tried different platforms. None of them were fast enough. And then my connection got throttled down. It, it was cheaper for me at that point to have one of the, the old NAS drives that I had kicking around, load it back up into my computer, throw all the data onto that, drive it to FedEx, wait in a huge line at FedEx, because uh, this was right before the Christmas holidays, uh, and uh, and got it out to them in time. And, and I haven't heard back, so I'm assuming they got it, because if they didn't, they'd be complaining. So uh, you should have messed with them and sent either a zip drive or a Bernoulli. <laughs> I'm just saying, just to mess with people, if you're going to do it, you know, your issue with Dropbox, by the way, is a known issue that Dropbox at a certain size, it doesn't say that it doesn't support it, but it will choke and the upload will fail. You can almost do a zip file that's the same size and it will succeed. Weird. But I do miss a service. There's a well-known company called Barracuda. They do perimeter security. Did, yeah, didn't they, they make had a competing like hardware service. firewalls? Yes. Or, you know, spam devices, anti-spam devices. Um, 
they had a service called Copy. When you signed up for Copy, you got 20 gigabytes for free, and then you got five gig for every referral code that was used. I built up a huge amount of stuff. Um, unfortunately, they you know, stopped doing it because it's hard to compete with companies like WeTransfer or Dropbox, even for a large enterprise company like that. But there are usually ways around it if you zip or do some, if you did a RAR file or something like that, you might be able to get it to keep the upload going. Yep, absolutely. But uh, I, I don't like to jump through hoops when things should be simple. I got to say, Gary says he still has a stack of zip drives. And that he's also a tech-savvy customer. And so thank you for being with tech-savvy because I I support the underdogs that use the infrastructure of the big guys, but they're their own independents. Um, And uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I transitioned to them. And uh, about a a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, we switched from Rogers being our uh, provider for internet and phones to tech-savvy for our internet uh, and, uh, uh, freedom mobile for our phones. And I, I, I wish I could remember the name of the ISP that's up by ant. The guy's been on the twit network a bunch of times because it's an actual ISP that believes in net neutrality and they do fiber at reasonable prices, gigabit fiber. It's a unicorn um, right there. Yeah. And the guy, the guy is super amazing when you hear him speak totally pro net neutrality and, I wish Sonic Sonic. There thank you, you aunt Sonic. Uh, Sonic, please come to inland Southern California. Please. We welcome please, you please, in Canada. I would, <laughs> I would sign up for your service instantly. Yes. Uh, hey, so Gary's there. also with freedom. Hey, we uh, speak the same mind, Gary. Uh, you're welcome to come on the show. Uh, if you want at some point in the future, uh, I know you will reject the offer, but, uh, the, I guess that goes into our picks of the week. I've I've picked yeah. my ISPs, but that doesn't that that's not the pick of the week that I want to really discuss. Um, before we get into that, though, Steve, where can people find you uh, and your illustrious podcast? Uh, you can find me at stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's. And on Instagram and Twitter, I've pretty much abandoned Facebook. The account is still open, but I've abandoned it for various reasons. Uh, it's at Steve Brazel again like Brazil, but two L's. The podcast is behindtheshot.tv. Somebody did a nice Instagram video the other day talking about the episode I did with this book that's behind me uh, from Darren McBurnett. It's called Uncommon Grit. And when Darren was on, it was a great episode. And, and she did an episode because she ordered the book because of the episode. And she said, behindtheshot.tv.com. No, just so that you know, it's behindtheshot.tv. There is no com or .com on the end of that. And it's Behind the Shot TV on Instagram and or Twitter. So those are the most likely places to find me. I do want to mention, if you don't mind, the the Princeton oh, please photo do. workshop this thing. Can I say that? Yes, and I got one so, coming up there too. Don is an instructor uh, with Princeton Photo Workshops, and along with Freddie Clark. And they apparently both mentioned me to Princeton Photo Workshops, who came to me. And I will be doing a class at Princeton Photo Workshops coming up in April. It's three consecutive Thursdays at an hour and a half, roughly, uh, each particular session on the challenges of low-light action photography. And it's low-light action photography, but it's going to be told from the point of view of what I shoot, which is music and and uh, some sports and fights type photography that I'll include in there. But it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com if you're interested. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, including mine, too, because I've got one coming up on macro photography. And it's basically a four-week course uh, where we sit down, we do image review after the first week, you know, and every week has a different topic uh, and so on. And uh, it starts in February, uh, February 18th, uh, and it goes on until March 11th. 
and uh, and that's uh, you know that's available if you want to learn from me personally. You want to be on a on a Zoom call uh, and uh, and chat about macro photography. Uh, you know if that's if that's your fancy. Uh, then we will be able to right. uh, to be there. And I sat through that class, by the way. I was lucky enough to get to audit Don's uh, that class. That was the water droplet one, which was slightly different. That was a two-week one. This is a I'm just saying one, your but... teaching style. Uh, and I just got to say, I love the way Don teaches. Uh, absolutely wonderful. It made me do water droplet photography. For and you did good, and I loved yeah. it. Yeah, I did all right. Yeah, well, hey, I did hey, all you, right. You encountered the frustrations that anybody suicide would. was close. Just saying, exactly. And uh, Jane chimes in that that she'll be there. So thank you for that, Jane. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, you know, I I, I want to go into to something that's you know normally it's a little bit more near and dear to my heart. Uh, when I'm doing art shows, uh, and I typically do one every year, uh, uh, Kempenfest at my uh, city's waterfront, where I sell a lot of canvas prints. Um, but I didn't do that this past year. And uh, likely it's not going to be happening in 2021 based on uh, the way things are going uh, from the summer. But I still produce a lot of work on canvas. And whether it's for my own enjoyment or for customers, um, I've had some bad experiences with uh, canvas material. There's some really cheap stuff out there that, you know, looks good on paper, pun intended. Uh, but by, by the time that the colors render and some of them say that, oh, well, you don't need to coat it with anything, but then like you spill coffee on it and it smears all the ink off of it. It's not good. You know, if you're gonna go to produce stuff on canvas, I would recommend that you use uh, the best that you can get. And uh, in my experience, and there's other comparable options. I'm not going to say that one thing is the ultimate, uh, but this is the one that I found to be the most acceptable for me. And it's from a company called Breathing Color. Uh, and Breathing Color, uh, they make the live canvas, spelled L-Y-V-E. And they make it in rolls, uh, you know, from I think 17 or 13 uh, inches all the way up to 50 or 60 inches in terms of the rolls. I've got 24 and 44 inch rolls here um, that I use. And actually behind me, I have, uh, let's see if I can uh, reach this. Like here's a reasonable size. This is 17 by 40. Oh, and they make sheets. You can just get a 17 by 20 sheet too. Sorry. Oh, your headphones are out. They make sheets too. There's a 17 by 20 sheet and there's a 17 by uh, 10 roll. Well, and, and I, have, just do it. I have a piece of artwork right here. This is a uh, uh, a thirty by forty canvas, and it's so big that I can't actually. Maybe if I hold it back here, you can see it. But this th this is massive uh, of one of my pieces, and uh, that was done on a uh, a forty four inch roll. But the idea of that is you coat it uh, with uh, a, a special coating that protects the canvas, and you can do this in a spray room, sure, if you have one. But I I don't. And so I use just a, uh, a dense foam roller and I roll that onto the canvas. It protects it from spills, ultraviolet light, et cetera, uh, makes it really robust. And I, I like the gloss because it brings up the texture in the canvas. It makes it feel a little bit more tactile. Um, and I use that for all of my canvas productions. So that is uh, what I use to produce canvas artwork. And like even the, the you can kind of see it behind me there. Uh, that artwork is uh, done as a an 80 by 20, I believe, on that same canvas. And it's held up wonderfully over the years. Um, so if you're thinking of printing, you're thinking of printing on canvas, uh, breathing color, 
The live canvas and the Glamour 2 gloss coating is what I use for all of my productions, and I've been happy with that for well over a decade. So for mine, before I do mine, uh, Jerry said he uses the same company, likes their canvas, and Ant wanted to pick one because he picked it on This Week in Google. He's one of the hosts on This Week in Google on the Twit Network, and your DP review video was his pick. On this week in Google, if you're a, if you're an Android user or a Google services user, Gmail, you're into it, whatever. Um, that's a that's a show you should be watching. But, and I'll I'll put a link to that uh, video yeah. in, uh, in in the YouTube chat here uh, that shows you that DP review Perfect. TV video on Snowflake photography. It's only six and a half minutes long or so. Uh, and if you watch it, um, give a nice comment. Subscribe to the channel after watching that video because that gives big props to me and the content that I'm creating. Uh, and the higher ups at DP Review will see that and see the value in my content more that the subscribers go up when something that I have published is the reason for that. And that makes me able to make more content for the platform. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I really and have some good ideas coming up. Whenever you subscribe on a YouTube channel, mine, Don's, whatever, DP Review, uh, make sure you hit the bell. Their algorithm is weird. Subscribing does not tell you when something new comes out. You'll miss that. So hit the bell. Choose all so that you're notified whenever they go live or when something Don posts is is new, you know, any, anything like that. So with that in mind, my pick of the week is, is a little bit uh, kind of self-serving in this particular <laughs> case. So I had a scenario where because I use this machine like I am today for doing live streams and for recording my podcast – I didn't want to upgrade to the latest operating systems. So I wasn't even on Catalina on the Mac. I was still on Mojave and I wanted Catalina really bad. I really want Big Sur too, but the software that I use was not super compatible for a long time. So I was waiting. I wanted this past month, two months ago, whatever, to upgrade to Catalina, but I'm a nut. I always clone my drive first and I want a bootable clone so that if something goes wrong, I can plug in a USB-C cable to that external drive, boot to that external drive and work. I don't mean just boot to reclone. I mean, in an emergency, I want to be able to boot and actually get my work done off the external booted clone. And, and here's you, the you thing. need speed and capacity to do that, right? <clears throat> so I have a standard, you know, portable drive, GTEC or whatever it was. Uh, it's 5,400 spinning drive. It's USB 3. I cloned to it. I went to boot to that drive, and I am not kidding. It took 20 minutes to get to a login screen. And when I typed in my password, it took 15 minutes to get to my desktop. And I went, okay, Amazon. And I immediately ordered one of these things. This is a Samsung T7 portable SSD drive. I got the two terabyte. I don't need two terabyte. My internal is only a terabyte. And of course I have room left on my terabyte internal. However, <clears throat> and by the way, I did not, let's just be clear here. I got that one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I got the blue. So I uh, bought one of these things. I got the two terabyte because for all I know, the next iMac that I buy, I'll put a two terabyte drive in it. And this is a perfect drive for the same thing. I cloned to this drive and it booted. This is one of the fastest portable SSDs you'll get, the Samsung T7. 
I was screaming fast. It booted as though it was my internal drive. It was that freaking wow. quick. I actually pulled up apps and did some work to test it. Once I had that, I was immediately able to simply upgrade to Catalina. And, and the one terabyte drive, and, by the way, uh, Steve, just to mention prices, is uh, yes. $159.99. One terabyte you know, would match what your regular internal stuff would be. Uh, and so right. $160. Bucks. Not that bad. But if you... The two terabyte lists at three seventy, but it, you can get it for two seventy. And if you only and this thing is, needed the five hundred gigabytes, which you know, especially if you're just trying to do an emergency boot or just you know do something yep. uh, for uh, reparative work, or it's eighty nine ninety nine. I mean, not wh- bad. Especially you just mentioned turning it on and getting to the login screen cost you almost forty minutes. Uh, you know, time is money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It. This thing is, and and here's here. This puts it in perspective. Forty two hundred reviews. Now I can't get five people to agree on where to eat dinner. <laughs> okay, but forty two hundred people, and this has an average of four point eight stars. And let me grab it. I also always do this, and I don't know that it will actually focus on it. Hopefully, it will. It's a little bright under the light, but I always label it that it's bootable, that it's my Catalina clone so that I can immediately identify it. But I love this drive. Uh, I, I will be using this for a long time. And so if A, if you want to clone your drive, Mac, PC, whatever, if you want to clone your drive before you do an operating system upgrade for backup, that's great. If you want to clone your drive on a regular scheduled basis for you know, redundancy and recovery. Keep in mind, a clone is not backup, just so that you know, it's not a backup system. But if you want to do that, the other advantage to this was when I did, I didn't want to upgrade to Catalina. I wanted to fresh install to Catalina. So now on this particular drive, I've got all my preference files. Uh, Just the other day, I hadn't, let's be honest, there's no concerts for me to shoot. So I hadn't shot a concert in a while. And I wanted to pull up some stuff in in Lightroom and all of my presets weren't there. They're on here. There you go. Right? I was able to go pull my preference files, my presets, all of that stuff and anytime I can go in there and and pull them off of the clone from before I upgraded. And, and you know what, Steve, which I, I cloned twice. I, I cloned, let me yep. let me add this real quick. I kept the 5400 RPM clone. That's my Mojave clone that's staying Mojave. So I can go backwards. Once I got Catalina on and up to date, I recloned to this drive. So this is the system I'm using. My other slow external drive has the files I can pull off of if I need to go back and get something down the road. And to echo off of Gary's comment in the chat, Steve, have you put a label maker uh, label maker label on your label maker? <clears throat> no, that's I should do that. <laughs> I should definitely do that. Because uh, those labels, yes, they got to go everywhere. But um, I I could imagine that two terabytes is the maximum right now, right? But SSD technology is evolving so quickly that you know, next year it's going to be four terabytes. The year after it's going to be eight yep. within roughly the same form factor. It might get a little bit fatter. But um, I, I've got a feeling that 
that will quickly uh, usurp hard drives in terms of capacity per performance. And that's going to completely revolutionize things, especially when you store a lot of stuff in a small space. I, I bought a five terabyte drive uh, sometime in October or November, uh, small USB-C uh, spinning disk drive. Uh, j just to right. do a backup of all of my edited images, my business files, et cetera. Not my raw files, not big enough for that. Uh, but periodically, I like to have that updated. But by the time I get to the say, oh, well, let's update it. Oh, I don't have enough space anymore. Because, you know, yeah. three terabytes is no longer enough to, to fit everything. And so I end up buying another one. Um, but that's, that's going to be a moving target for a lot of people. But if you can get your entire base operating system and everything on, that's a pretty solid target. It's not going to be deviating too much from there in the next little while. No, and this will last me for a long time. And again, I've got two because when I when I cloned Mojave to this so that I had a fast emergency in case the up you know the the fresh install wasn't ready in time, but I also had the fifty four hundred that stays there. So now this has been recloned to the current system Catalina, which means if I'm missing something from the old system, it's not there. Got the old got one, it. and like I say, just the other day I had a good example. I I uh, what I was missing was Lightroom has export presets, and I had a custom a couple of custom Lightroom export presets and LR transporter that I use for copyright registration, the plugin, I had saved certain templates. I went back to the old drive, grabbed them. Piece of cake. Fantastic. Uh, well, Steve, thank you for your pick of the week. Hope everybody enjoyed mine as well and the stories that we talked about on this episode. And thank you for everybody that was joining in live. Um, the commentary is always welcome. Uh, and you know what? I, I want to do more of these. I, I've uh, at the very beginning, uh, I, I showed off that I have a stream deck here uh, so that I can start to do these kinds of switches. Uh, I haven't taken the time to invest into that right now because my priorities are different. Uh, they're, you know, finishing my book and, and, and a few other things that uh, they're definitely, uh, you know, more important than me taking the reins. But Steve, you've already got this figured out. And I'm glad that you can do that right now for us for these live streams. And I will, you know, even with the mistakes, even I with the mistakes, Hey, I don't care. Uh, cause I'm not making those mistakes, so I'm fine with them. Uh, but I, I will have that stream deck up and running in the near future, uh, maybe before the end of the first quarter of this year. And, uh, I'll be uh, doing live streaming for just about every episode, I think, cause this has gone really well. Um, and thank you to everybody that has been watching live. Um, and just, well, you know, one final note, it is 2021, uh, that the world is going to be in a better place this year. I've got a very good feeling for that, um, you know, in so many different ways. I, I don't want to uh, talk uh, politics and religion amongst friends, uh, so we're not going to go that route. But vaccines are rolling out. The science of the world and the pandemic is getting better and lighter amidst the exact same time where caseloads are hitting skyrocketing levels. So it's not all good, but I've got a feeling that this is going to be the turning point in a lot of people, uh, including myself, that's going to make the world a better place, especially for photographers, whether you be a portrait wedding photographer uh, or somebody such as myself that depends on a lot of income from in-person workshops. Uh, it, it, it's getting better. And uh, Steve, I know you want to get back out and shoot in the music scene. And I, I oh, really yeah. hope that that happens sooner than later, but I got a feeling it's going to happen this year. It's all going to turn around for us. Uh, but before that happens, thank you all for listening. And it is still time to stay in and shoot. <laughs> <laughs>